If you would, please take out your Bibles if you have them and turn over to the book of Genesis chapter 3. For those of you who were with us last week, we began looking at this particular chapter and we got through the first paragraph with a view to finishing it up this week. But if you weren't here last week and you're visiting for the first time and you're perhaps wondering why at the Advent time of year I might have chosen Genesis 3. Uh, for a very simple and important reason, that when we start thinking about what we're, what we're singing about is the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ in the flesh, we need to understand that that event did not happen in a vacuum. That is just not a cool thing that happened along the way in the history of humanity. That was a very intentional and very uh, purposeful uh, event that was a response to a need in human beings. And I think as Christians, sometimes we can, not, not that we fully forget, but sometimes it's easy for us to not remember the importance and the purpose of the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. It's just this thing that we celebrate and we sing about it and we have these wonderful, memorable Christmas hymns about it. But, beloved, we we need to remember why it happens, and every so often it's good for us to come back round to it, that this event happens because humans are born dead in their sin, and they're born dead in their sin because of an event that occurred in ancient history that has a, a deadly ripple effect of evil and cursing that has affected humanity ever since the event itself. And so when we start thinking about Christmas being merry or this time of year being hopeful, well, it's, it's merry and it's hopeful because there is a point in human history where there is no joy and there is no hope. There is only death and despair. And if you're thinking, what a depressing thing to think about this time of year, it is. And it's meant to be. It's meant to send us spiraling down to a place of saying, what can we do? What is the response? What is the answer? What is the answer to this tailspin of sin and death? And beloved, of course, we know that the answer is Christ. But as I said to you last week, I'll repeat it this week, until we understand and appreciate the bad news, the gospel ceases to be good news. It's just news. If all it's doing is telling us this cool story about this this guy who was born from a a virgin and he said some great things and he did some great things and he helped humanity out of a hole. Jesus didn't help humanity out of a hole. He He didn't, Jesus didn't throw down a rope and say, you start climbing and I'll meet you halfway. Jesus found us when we were dead, completely dead, not climbing up a rope, not even thinking about climbing up a rope not even thinking about getting out of that hole. In fact, when we were still His enemies, He died for us. Beloved, do you know what that means for you and for me? (laughs) That means when we were still shaking our fist. Lord, Brad, I was saved when I was six. I never shook my fist at the Lord. Ah, your little heart did too. Children are corrupted too, I promise you. They're beautiful, they're lovely, and they need Jesus. And if you've had children, you know I'm right. But Jesus came to those who were shaking their fist at him and saying, no, thank you, 
And he said, God said to us through the incarnation is, I know what you need more than you do. <laughs> yes. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we're going to continue our look at Genesis chapter 3 and laying the foundation for what we will lead us up to next Sunday, God willing, as we look at the answer to this. So if you would uh, follow in Genesis, we have a longer passage this morning. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, looking at verse 8, and we'll read through verse 19. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, for he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of the ground you were taken, for you, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time and for this opportunity to dig into Your Scriptures, to think through Your Word. I pray that You would capture our minds and hearts. Oh God, we see the problem Help us to see the remedy with clarity. God, help us to see our deep need for you in all things. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we come here, what we're looking at is we've seen the act itself, right? Last Sunday we saw the act itself, the act of disobedience. And so now we're looking at the fallout from that, the ripple effect of what does that mean then for humanity. So the, the, they've eaten from the tree, and what, is going to be the, what, are, what will be the ramifications of that? So we're, we're seeing now the ripple effect, and it's just this good reminder, right? This good reminder that what we do has consequences. How we live our lives, the decisions we make, the actions that we do, they have consequences. And in this particular case, it had huge consequences for their lives and for the lives of those who would follow after them. In fact, 
I'll come back to this here in just a minute. We don't have to read very far to see a wealth of consequence of this act. When we get over to Genesis 4, we immediately see what happens when the human heart becomes corrupted with the notion of sin or with the idea of sin and death. It leads to death, and death leads to more death, and death will lead to more death. In fact, if you were to take the first 11 chapters of Genesis and just look at them. Obviously, you have the creation narratives in 1 and 2, and then the fall in in 3. So, just 4 through 11. If you were to look at 4 through 11, one of the things you're going to see that's going to jump off at the page to you is death. Death, murder, constant death, evil and death, until God finally decides in a moment of judgment to send a flood. Why? Because only evil and death rule in the hearts of human beings. Beloved, it's a, sad, it's a sad story. It's a sad case. It's one of those stories that as you're reading it, it is begging the question, who will deliver us from this? Who can change this? Who can make a better way through this? So it's inviting us to ask the question. That's what a good story does. It invites the reader to ask questions with hopes that the answer is found. And of course, in this case, we know that it is. Well, this morning, as we're looking through this long passage, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that sin brought death, shame, and judgment and the need for salvation. Sin brought death, shame, and judgment and the need for salvation. When we look at the story, we understand that Adam and Eve have committed a crime, as it were, a crime against the Lord, and it's going to have consequences, major ones. So as we kind of get back into this story here, looking at verse 8, what we find is, so we know that they ate of the tree, that's what we find out in verses 6 and 7, and that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves in verse 7 together and made for themselves loincloths. And so immediately we pick up in 8, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Technically, verses 8 to 13 is is a tight paragraph. They kind of function as just one seamless little portion of the story. But when we get here, when we get to verse 8, the the one word that really should come to mind is the word sin. They have done something knowingly wrong. And we know that they've done something knowingly wrong because their first response to this thing is to begin to recognize themselves for what they are, feel a deep sense of shame over their nakedness, and begin to hide themselves. That is a critical part of this story, this, this first response of hiding. Because again, they hide, they, they sew loincloths, and now uh, we, we, we might think, well, that might seem natural. But remember, there is no shame when there is no sin. So even nakedness is not shameful. So their first act, their first response to sin, to disobedience, to intentionally rebelling against God is to begin a process that will not stop, a process of hiding. They begin to hide themselves from one another. What they've done is commit an act of disobedience. This is deviation from God's plan. The snake deceived them. He showed them a fruit that was good for eating, that would give them wisdom and would make them like God. So they chose it. So they chose their own plan 
And now this sin has brought death and shame to humanity. And what's it done? It's created a need in them. It's created a need that they don't even recognize yet, but we can see it because we know the story. It's created a need for something to come and make this right. At this point, Adam and Eve are in a dire situation in the sense that they've done something that in the moment might seem irredeemable. Right? So they've created a need which ultimately we understand that need to be the incarnation. They've created a need for God to make them right because they have personally made themselves wrong. I don't want us to think this is merely about two human beings made in the image of God eating a piece of fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, and God got really upset over a very minor issue. Beloved of God, this is a story of rebellion. And it's easy for us to make light of it when all it involves is taking a piece of fruit off a tree and biting into it. But rebellion has consequences. And what rebellion introduces in the heart of a person is, I will do it my way when I want to, and regardless of any consequences and regardless of what you say. And it creates a barrier, an obstacle between the one who has set everything in motion and the people who are subservient to that system. So this is not just they took an apple or a pomegranate or whatever fruit you want to imagine it was and ate it. They did do that, but this is a heart rebellion that is going to shape humanity for millennia to come, and millennia and millennia and millennia until Jesus finally returns for the second time. So this is a very big part of the story and a very big deal. So, seven, they hid their body parts, and eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day or in the wind of the day, however you're your translation might say that. And so they, they hid themselves. They hid themselves among the trees from God. So now not only have they covered up their bodies in shame, they're now hiding from the Lord. It's always going to be the result of sin. Sin is always going to lead to that place. Always. Now, sometimes people will sin boldly and sin outwardly, but as a general rule, when people want to do something that they know is wrong, they want to do it in secret and they want to hide. So sin is always going to have the effect of wanting us to hide in some way, shape, or form. What's interesting here in the Hebrew when it says they heard the sound of God walking in the, in the wind or the cool of the day, that's very interesting there. That, that's an ambiguous phrase. Uh, the word there, sound, kol, could mean voice. It could mean like speaking, or it could mean aloud. Sometimes that same word is used for thunder. And so it's led some people to think that God came down in a whirlwind because He understood what had happened in a quasi-little storm, and that made them afraid and they hid from it because it was stirring up stuff in the garden with this wind. I, d I don't happen to think that. Actually, that's a cool theory. Really what I think God did know what they had done. He had come down at a time in maybe which he had had uh, fellowship with them before. But they understood the consequences of what they'd done to some degree because their first response is to be out of his presence. They hid themselves, it said, from the presence of the Lord. They fled from the place of refuge to a place of hiding. That is not a good place. They fled from the place 
of security and safety to a place of danger out from underneath the Lord. And so that when God asks the question, where are you? Don't let yourself think that he doesn't know where Adam is. I want you to understand this is a first marker of an invitation from Yahweh to Adam and Eve. Where are you is really an invitation to come and present yourself. Come and let me know what you've done. Beloved, if I could make so bold a claim as this, it is the, God's first offer to Adam to come and confess. Come out of hiding into the light. Come away from all the things, all the intrigue, and into my presence. Present yourself to me. That's what God is doing. God is not unclear about where Adam is. He's asking Adam to come and make it right. Who knows what would have happened? It is useless to speculate, but this is God's first offer, His first offer to come and confess. What does Adam say? We heard you. We were afraid. Our God is a consuming fire. This is what sin does. The offer of sin is life is going to be better. The reality of sin is then when we come face to face with the righteousness and holiness of God, it makes us afraid because we see our fallenness. We see, we see the heights from which we have fallen. And when we see that here, um, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden against the same voice or same word as voice there. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Look, he's already feeling the shame. His nakedness is one reason he's afraid. He doesn't want God to see him naked. We need to understand that the naked, God sees us naked. Not, and I don't want us to think of uh, the idea of clothes here, but he sees us for who we are. His eyes pierce to the very depths of our, our soul. But Adam was afraid. He feared. Why? Why did he fear? He says, because I was naked. What does that tell you and me? I'm guilty. This is the fear of a guilty man. He's afraid because he knows he's in the wrong. It's easy to wag our fingers at Adam, isn't it? How often when we find ourselves in the pinch of a hard circumstance, is it much easier for us in a moment to hide than it is to be transparent? than it is to be vulnerable, than it is to be honest. It's much easier. It's much more natural to us to hide because sin wants us to hide. There's two reasons sin does that. One is the most natural response is shame. We feel the shame. Can I tell you another more insidious reason that sin does that? Because sin doesn't want to be found. It wants to hide so that it can grow. It wants to hide so that it can get stronger. It wants to hide so that it can enslave at a deeper level until it's got us mind, body, and soul. And Adam, new to sin, doesn't fully appreciate all this, but this is what's happening in the garden. Sin is, he's trying to hide, but the problem is, is he's standing in the presence of Yahweh where there is no hiding place. So this is where we are. That first instinct is always to hide, to flee exposure. But we uh, see that God sees. And can I, here, so, so as I've just laid out this very dark, harsh reality, here's the thing. When we start thinking about the coming of Christ, the incarnation, 
Incarnation is just a fancy way of speaking of Christ coming in the flesh. We start thinking about Christ coming in the flesh. What is the incarnation? It's the reality that God has seen the depths of our rebellion and brokenness. It's the reality that God has seen the places where we hide. It's the reality that God has seen us in our fallen state and how far afield we have drifted and sends Jesus in spite of all that, who comes to us at, in man's weakest moment, at his weakest point, in our weakest hour, to say, I am sending you a strength that you can't comprehend, and right now you may not even understand it. You may not understand all the details of it, but it is the thing that is going to lift you out of that deep hiding place that we don't need to be in. And beloved, it's beautiful and it's hard. Because see, the incarnation says, I see you for who you are and I love you anyway. That's a beautiful thing. That's an awesome thing. But the incarnation also says, I am not going to let you hide. And oh, that sounds like torture in a moment, doesn't it? Hard to have your sins exposed. It's hard to have our missteps put in our face and have to look at what we've done and to deal with the consequences, and it is one of the most beautiful, hard things God does. Why does it even happen? Because Jesus came. Because in the little town of Bethlehem, Jesus came. And what he said was, these things in you, Brad, and you, whomever you are, deserve death. They deserve death. And I'm going to take those things, I'm going to lay them on my son. And I'm going to take his beautiful, perfect life, and I'm going to give that to you, though you don't deserve it, so that now you can live before me with his righteousness and not a slave to sin and death any longer. Amen and amen and amen and amen. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And we see it. So the, the beauty of the incarnation is, comes in the midst of a whole sea of ugliness. Adam continues to dialogue with the Lord. Who told you you were naked? I've always found that very funny. Who, who told you you were naked? But of course, God knows why they know that. Well, what's this next question? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? God understands exactly why Adam is aware of his nakedness. God is clarifying this disobedience. But here's the thing, beloved. Here is Adam's second opportunity to just own it and confess it. God asks him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What does he say? Well, the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. It's her fault. That woman you gave me, God, that woman you put here with me, I didn't ask for her. She, she, she is the one who gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. This is his second opportunity to confess it to just own what he had done, but of course he blames, he blames Eve. And in, in some senses, if we extrapolate in some ways, he blames God. Well, if, maybe if God hadn't put her there, this wouldn't have happened. And so when we think about that, we think about this second now opportunity. Adam, where are you? Come and present yourself, let me know. 
And now, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It's this opportunity for him to just say, yeah, I did. That's exactly, I did. But, but he doesn't do that. Oh, he's got a human problem that you and I still have, and that's the old blame shift. It's not really my fault. This, you can't lay, I'm not going to take responsibility for this. This is somebody else's responsibility. We have whole systems of fault built on this. When you start examining the, the ins and outs of critical theory, it is built on the idea that we can blame shift. And beloved, when, when, we, when we look at those things, we scratch our heads, where does that come from? That stuff comes right here. This initial blame shift of putting things off, putting things out, putting things on other people, this can't be my fault because of circumstances, instead of Adam just saying, yeah, I ate it. Now, it's easy for me to say that, and it's easy for us to think it, but every single one of us in here have been Adam at some point in our lives and have blame shifted because it's easy to do, and it's more comforting, and it makes me feel somewhat better about a stupid decision if I can put it off on somebody else, and then I don't have to own responsibility for it. So God, from Adam, turns to the woman. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, another little sidestep and a blame shift. So now it's the, it's the snake's fault, this notion of just like Adam, Eve pleads victimhood, and neither have really accepted full responsibility for what they've done. When we get to this point, what happens then, we've gotten all the details that we need. What happens is, is, is the God's uh, pronouncement of judgment that begins to take place. That this idea that now judgment, because of this act, is coming, which is going to require a response. It's going to require a salvation um, from this act of judgment if people are actually going to live. And so what we get here is the consequences and the remedy for this giant misstep. God immediately, in verse 14, He turns to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is the first thing to catch the judgment of God. And I want you to notice something. The word curse is used here. It will only be used one other time. And in this particular context, it's the serpent that is cursed. And the curse is this. You are cursed to crawl on your belly and eat dust. What do you think that means in a moment? Do you, do you think that God, we're just getting a story for how snakes were made? Well, no. It's bigger than that. Uh, do you think that we're, we should uh, extrapolate from this that snakes had legs before this and now they don't? You can think that. I don't really care. It, it, it's not a big deal. If you think that, great. If you think that they were upright and walking with legs, that's fine. But that's not the point here. The point here is the humiliation of you will be low. You will be laid low, and you will have no substance. You will eat the dust of the field. You will be lowered and not exalted. So that's why when we see pagan religions who try to exalt the snake and make it a pinnacle or something to be worshipped, beloved of God, that's very satanic. 
Because God has told us from the beginning that symbolically or metaphorically or however literally you want to take this, that this creature is going to be made low. And there's a reason for that. Because this, God is giving us a physical picture of what sin actually does to us. It lowers us down. It robs us of humanity. It makes us more serpent-like and less human. It puts us beneath the dignity of our position of being created in the image of God. So this snake, this serpent, this very, very uh, unique beast in human history is brought low. And here again, we can focus on this as a literal or a figurative thing. In fact, some scholars say, how do we even know? Because if I were, before I finish that sentence, let me back up and say one more thing. In the text itself, there is no indication, nothing is said that makes you think that the snake is Satan. Nothing. Not in this text anyway. So when you're reading Genesis 3, just at face value, all you know is that the serpent is crafty, it can talk, it is against God, and it's deceiving Eve or helping to deceive Eve into eating, Adam and Eve into eating the fruit. Now, how do we put legs on our theology to understand what's happening here? Well, this is the beauty of the whole Scripture giving commentary on stories. So really, you'd have to fast forward to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20 and in chapter 12, John references that ancient serpent who is the devil. That ancient serpent who is also could be uh, construed as a dragon is the, the one who's been the enemy of humanity from the beginning. And the book of Revelation is great commentary on the book of Genesis Regardless of whatever eschatological, that is end times view you take, the book of Revelation gives us great insight into creation, the ripple effect of the fall, and how the people of God are supposed to live in light of that. So we turn to the Bible to help us understand the Bible, and it gives us the sense of this serpent as not just any serpent, but it is one arrayed against God. And why is it arrayed against God? Because some satanic power has come to face humanity and bring them down and destroy the image of God in them. And so when we think about the incarnation, one of the things we have to think about is Jesus came to restore the image of God in His people. It's there. It's all there. And and, and people that we would call our worst enemy, the image of God is there. But it needs restoration. And we won't do it on our own. Because of this story, our parents sank us into death. We get in verse 15 what some people call the proto-gospel, the proto-euangelion, however you want to say it, the initial announcement of a salvation to come. When he talks about enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Beloved, we're getting here what's called seed theology, that God is building a kingdom who is the seed of the woman, who is the ultimate seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman. It's interesting that that word there in the text is singular, not offsprings, but offspring. It's getting to the fact that there is one coming 
who will restore, who will defeat the serpent that Adam and Eve did not defeat and would restore life, who would reverse the curse of death, who would reverse the curse of alienation from God, and who would give life and give relationship. And it will be a long, hard-fought battle. But it's coming through this one. And this this, this announcement of the gospel is the announcement of the hope of Christ that is coming in the incarnation. When some people read the book of Genesis, just to be fair, they do not see that in there. All they see is this simply announces that there will be a struggle between the kingdom of darkness and light. I personally think that is a very hopeless way to look at this. It's true, but it's much bigger than that. Because once you get out of here, once you get out of Genesis 3 and you go to Genesis chapter 4, you get the immediate struggle as it begins, Cain and Abel. And it will not stop there. It will continue and continue. You can trace it all the way through the historical books. You can trace it all the way through the poetical books. You can trace it all the way through the prophets, that there's this constant struggle between light and darkness, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the struggle for righteousness, and it culminates in one person and in one event, and that's Jesus Christ and His birth that has been announced in the Old Testament. So I love what God does here. Yeah, we've got a problem, and there's going to be one solution, and it's going to come through the offspring of the woman. And I love that even now, redemption and restoration, the second phase of our our worldview framework, it comes at a price. There is a great bruising. And uh, some people wonder why the word bruise there seems like such a similar word. If how, does, how would satanic power bruise Christ and he only bruise? Well, think about the area where the bruising takes place. You shall bruise his heel, what would be considered a, a minor wound. He shall bruise your head. That at the cross, Jesus would defeat Satan. But I love that even in the beginning, that God tells Adam and Eve and the serpent, it'll come at a price. The incarnation is beautiful, beloved. It really is. But we can't think of it outside the context of the crucifixion. We have to understand that it pushes us to look at that. That the incarnation is is pushing us to now look forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It demands it, in fact. Now, I want, you to under, I want you to see something. The serpent, cursed are you above all livestock. And then look at when God turns to the woman. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The ESV has made, um, they've made a, an interpretation choice here by using contrary. It's not a bad choice. But if you're wondering why your Bible may say, your desire will be for your husband, he shall rule over you. That's literally what the text says. But we'll come to this in just a moment about that, what that desire means. But notice, the woman is not cursed. I want you to catch that. Snake is cursed. The woman, the first human being that he speaks to after the snake, she is not cursed. But he does tell her that she will feel the effects of a curse, pains, 
So often, people will relegate the pain that's talked about here as purely in childbirth will hurt. That's not the sense of the Hebrew word. It is that, but it is much bigger than that. The idea that God presents Eve with here is multifaceted. It's not just that labor pains will hurt. It's that family life will hurt. The rearing of children will hurt. There'll be pain. There'll be sorrow. There'll be brokenness because now you are bringing little ones into the world who will not know goodness, only evil, and will need redemption. He is talking about the struggles that women will have in child labor, uh, struggles that incorporate infertility and all sorts of other things that might render childbirth not only really hard, but even impossible because there's going to be pain there because of the ramifications of introducing evil into the world is not without consequences. Can I say this enough? The evil acts that we choose to engage are never without consequences, even if we think we're hidden. They have a, ram- they have a ripple effect. And so I want us to see the pain as not just, wow, it's really painful to give birth, even though it is. I mean, I don't know from experience, but I have witnessed it a few times. Um, and it looks painful. I'll, I'll give you that. It, it looks really painful. Uh, But that's not all it is. It's the many pains that are associated. Beloved of God, when we start thinking about what has sin done, have you ever talked to a parent who's lost a child? I'll tell you this much. I haven't lost one of my children, uh, praise God, but I've talked to to many who have, and, and, and the idea that no parent is supposed to bury their child, you know, I mean, that That hurts. That's a ramification of what sin has done to the, uh, the world. It's introduced, a dis- it's introduced a disruption of life at a street level that is painful. And so when we start thinking about the consequences, this is not just a piece of fruit. This has brought a disruption into life that now moms and dads will have to walk through deep valleys of pain. Why do we need the incarnation? Because some hurts just go too deep. They go too deep for us to find solace in anything on this earth. We need something real. So sin disrupts family life, and we need Christ for harmony. But listen, he turns now back to the man, to the woman Oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me get this one. The woman, he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Uh, many, uh, many of thoughts <laughs> have been given on what this means. Um, I want you to read this in context of another verse I'm going to read to you, coming right out of Genesis chapter 4. In verse 7, God is telling Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Here you go. It's desire. They again translate this way. The ESV is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Its desire is to have you. Its desire is to consume you. Its desire is to rule over you and subjugate you. So when we start looking at one of the ripple effects of sin, when it talks about the woman's desire being for her husband, it is a, in a way in which 
keeps a household or a family unit in a place of discord. In other words, now, Adam, I have created Eve to be a helpmeet and to follow you and help you. Now, it's not going to be that easy because we've awakened rebellion in the hearts of both of you. Her rebellion is going to be even against your leading. And it's created disruption in the family unit. You don't have to look very hard in culture to see how that happens. We have rampant divorce. We have misunderstandings of how husband and wives are supposed to relate. And beloved, we can look right here and say, why do we need the incarnation? Because we need to figure out how to peaceably and sacrificially love one another. And that is only learned through Christ. He finishes, he rounds out this judgment sequence with Adam. He says, and to Adam or to the man, he said, a side note. So when you're reading in, in, in the original language, uh, the word man is very similar to the word Adam. The, the word Adam comes from the Hebrew word adumah, of the ground. Man is a very similar word to that. So, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do you notice in there? Another curse, but again, not on Adam. The curse is on the ground. Adam will feel the effects of the curse, much like Eve will feel the effects of the curse, but they themselves are not cursed. It's an interesting concept. Uh, the curse of sin is laid on creation, but in some senses we find God even now in grace and mercy, not directly cursing His image bearers, but cur cursing the world around them that will fill their hearts with dismay, despair. So the curse that Adam has to deal with is it makes work agonizing and laborious. So the ground will fight against man, much like man and wife now will fight one another. There won't be harmony. There won't be natural unity. The ground is going to fight against Adam's rule and authority. It's going to fight against his husbandry. It's not going to willingly yield its fruit. He will have to work hard for it by his sweat and labor. Labor is not a curse. Never was. Adam was created to labor. But toilsome labor, hard labor, is a part of the reality of sin. But beloved, what is the ultimate? As Adam has to deal with the thorns and thistles, God says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is just kind of like the silent hammer stroke of you will die. I made you from the dust, and I'll return you to the dust in death. It's the ultimate judgment of sin. It's the ultimate thing that now, that now kind of shuts the book on what has happened in the fall. It's that ultimate judgment that says we need an answer. Well, if that's what some people do or don't celebrate Christmas, and it's fine. We, we're free of conscience to do or not. Whether you celebrate it or not, 
we can at least agree that from its earliest days, the church celebrated the advent of Jesus because church fathers from of old have understood that it is the answer to sin and death. You and I, through the incarnation, we need hope, we need light. Why? Because in our left to ourselves, we're lost in death, we're lost in darkness, and we need an answer. I, I rehash Genesis 3, probably a passage of Scripture that is well known to most of you in here, not for the purposes of simply rehashing a well-known story, but to remind us of the great need of hope and light in ourselves and in our world. This morning, if you are in Christ and you are walking in the light, God bless you. Every time you slip and fall and slip into darkness, I remind you to come back to this wonderful truth. This morning, maybe you're not walking in the light. And, you, and I'll ask you this, if you're not walking in the light, what are the frameworks have you tried and what have, they, what have they wrought you? What have they yielded to you? Probably not much. We're constantly looking for answers. And the reason we are is because something has happened in the heart of humanity that needs a remedy. And it's sin and it's death and it's destruction. But here's the truth and here's the beauty. God has given an answer. He's not left us to ourselves. He's not left us to twist in the wind. He's not put us out on our own. He has given us hope. He has given us light. He has given us a response. And His name is Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate Him every Sunday, celebrate Him every Sunday. But in this season when we sing our carols, when we, we meet together, and, and next Sunday night when we come together and we rehearse the Christmas story, beloved, may we find newfound celebration for what Jesus has done and the depths that He has traversed to rescue us from death. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this time this morning and the opportunity to share in, this, in the richness of this story yet again. Oh, Father, it is hard, and it hammers the soul, the reality of what it's done, and yet... God, through all the pain, through all the toil, through all the hardship, there is hope, there is renewal. Thank you for Jesus Christ, and may we exalt him today and every day, and may your grace shepherd us through all the trials of life, knowing that because of the incarnation, we are free. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.